previously on American Jihadi. So if you can encourage more of your children and more of your, your neighbors and anyone around you to send people like him to this jihad, it would be a great asset for us. Maybe it's just for show. Or, like, is he killing people? Is he... I didn't really know what was going on. I just knew that that was my brother on TV. Right now, I live in an empty house with internet. I don't leave except on rare occasions when the streets are dead to go use the phone. People are looking for excuses to get me out of the way. In my back and forth with Omar, there was always this strange split in the way he presented himself. The part that made the most sense to me was the part that we shared. References to 90s bands like Sublime and the Red Hot Chili Peppers. The way we take shots at each other over email. The other part, Omar in Somalia. Omar the Jihadi. That part was harder. So sometimes I would try to get Omar to show me how to put the two parts together. After I came back from interviewing his parents in Alabama, I asked him how he would explain himself to them, what he wanted them to know about who he was now. I want them to know that I'm the same Omar in a new box of surroundings and circumstances. Some may find it easier to assume that I have changed, but the real change is in my environment. It was an answer he'd given me a bunch of times before, in other emails and even in the way he told his life story in his autobiography. I have always been making the same choices since I was young. I've always despised oppression and stood for what I thought was right. What was new in this version was the way he framed his answer. I believe that everyone is born with a degree of inherent goodness or badness within himself. It may seem to our eyes that so-and-so was an extremely good man who later became evil or vice versa. But the capacity for good or evil was always residing in that person. He was only waiting for the right situation to present itself for that capacity to be made known through the choices he makes. Somalia, jihad, he seemed to be saying, they weren't a wrong turn he had taken. They were an opportunity to test himself, to prove who he had been all along. I am still me, still playing my same role, but maybe on a different set with a different costume. I'm Christoph Putzel. This is American Jihadi. Episode 4, The Test. I was far from the only person in the West trying to figure out just what Omar was up to in Somalia. At the time, J.M. Berger was a counterterrorism analyst studying online extremism. The first time I heard about Omar Hamami was when Al-Shabaab put out a video featuring him, you know, working with other fighters, engaging in an attack, and most memorably, he was rapping. Night by night, day by day, Mujahideen spreading all over the place. Matt Bryden was an expert on security in the Horn of Africa. I mean, he cut quite a character. He was, uh, he was young, he had uh, hair down to his shoulders, and and a beard. He rapped. I mean, he was an extraordinarily bad rapper, but he made an effort, and that that certainly made an impression on his audience. Yael Eisenstadt is a former CIA officer and former diplomat. She was working for the State Department in Kenya in 2006 when Omar first surfaced. Whether or not he was truly useful to anybody in Somalia, he was the biggest propaganda and recruiting tool possible. Like, that must have been just a goldmine for them. The video with Omar rapping put Al-Shabaab on the map. It got 
unbelievable amounts of news coverage. There's no way Al-Shabaab could have gotten that PR on its own at that moment in time. The thing about Hamami was that he was one of very few foreign fighters with Al-Shabaab who spoke fluent English. And so he became a kind of poster boy for recruitment of Westerners. If you're joining the global jihad, you weren't necessarily thinking Somalia until Omar starts telling you, hey, this is where the jam's at. This is this is it. Luring them to the cause and trying to romanticize what it was to be you know, a fighter uh, in the Somali bush uh, taking on the Ethiopians. Up until probably this moment, we didn't necessarily think this homegrown terrorist being inspired by things happening in other countries was as much an issue for us here in the U.S. What was frightening about Omar wasn't necessarily what Omar could do himself. It was the way the internet allowed his message to reach the entire world. Only a tiny percentage of any given population are going to be susceptible to a terrorist recruiter. But if you reach a million people, that tiny percentage can be, you know, a thousand people. Al-Shabaab's PR campaign was reaching a lot of people. Federal prosecutors say terrorists are being recruited in Minnesota. To fight with the Al-Qaeda-linked terror group, Al-Shabaab in Somalia. The most troubling situation is in Minneapolis. Where up to 27 young men have vanished. This was the first time authorities had ever seen so many Americans leave to join an Islamic extremist group overseas. Most of the young men who disappeared were of Somali descent, children of parents who had originally fled the fighting their years earlier. U.S. counterterrorism officials tell NBC News around 50 Americans, most of them of Somali origin, have come here to fight. Some were recruited by this man, a 26-year-old from Alabama. Omar Hamami. Al-Shabaab uses him in their internet-based recruitment videos, a poster boy to advertise their cause. He called on all Somalis to return home and fight for their country. Somali communities in Boston, Cleveland, San Diego, and Seattle, Canada, Australia, and Great Britain are also missing young Somalis. They went to join an Islamist militia, but mostly they believed they were there to defend their homeland. The United States had backed an invasion by Ethiopia, and al-Shabaab had come together to fight back. That was the cause Omar was recruiting for. But the U.S. government saw it differently. Al-Shabaab was designated a terrorist organization. And Omar was accused of being a recruitment strategist, a top field commander, and a financial manager for the group. By 2009, he'd been indicted in federal court on three separate terrorism charges. If he ever returned to the U.S., he was potentially facing 45 years in prison. In the six years since Omar joined al-Shabaab, the group's goals had become less and less clear, and its tactics more and more violent. Security officials implicate al-Shabaab in the assassination of aid workers and in a string of bomb attacks in Mogadishu. What had started out as a resistance movement meant to protect Somali citizens had ended up as just one more warring faction, killing anyone who opposed them and enforcing a particularly brutal version of Sharia law. We obtained these pictures of a group of young men who've each had a hand and foot cut off. They were accused of stealing. We were told how women suspected of adultery are stoned to death in the streets. In an email, I tried to pin Omar down about where the line was between him and the worst of al-Shabaab. It's difficult for many people who know you to understand how you could so strongly align yourself with a group like al-Shabaab, which has grown infamous for implementing public executions, stonings, cutting off limbs. Have you watched or participated? While I understand how you justify it under Islamic law, doesn't that kind of brutality still affect your psyche? I think the brutality, as you have termed it, 
is exactly the cause behind the intended psychological effect. The whole purpose of these punishments is to stand in the way of more such crimes. The hippies will scream that it doesn't work, but Islamic countries that apply these laws have much less crime than other countries. Omar went on to describe watching a video of a public execution at a soccer stadium not long after he arrived in Somalia. I was squirming in my seat and covering my eyes the whole time. I don't think I will ever kill someone with a knife without due right after watching that. But Omar had been in Somalia for a long time now, and I didn't know how far things had gone for him. Have you killed anyone? If so, how many? And how? Sounds like that question you're supposed to ask your cellmate, doesn't it? I think if you ask people who have actually engaged in combat and they were honest, they would mostly say, I don't know. Even when you come across bodies after the fact, with everyone shooting, it's tough to know whose bullet went where. There are exceptions to that rule, and I can say yes to the question, but I don't know to the how many. How did it feel? The way it feels is probably like giving a speech to a packed stadium. You feel nervous until you get into it. But the difference with us and non-Muslims is that we know that our cause is just and that killing has been prescribed for us. I understand that this is how you justify it, but can you honestly say that you never for a second felt any guilt? So long as the guy was definitely at war with Islam, I can't see how I could feel any guilt. Guilt only comes from doing something wrong. My conscience is clean. In one of the videos Omar had appeared in, there's a shot of him sitting on the ground surrounded by a group of young men listening to him lecture about the sacrifices they've made to join al-Shabaab. So the only reason we're staying here, away from our families, away from the cities, away from, you know, ice, candy bars, all these other things, is because we're waiting to meet with the enemy. So inshallah, The FBI would later identify one of the men in the video listening to Omar as Shoah Ahmed, one of the dozens of Somali Americans who had disappeared from Minnesota. It was Ahmed who would begin to embody American authorities' worst fears about al-Shabaab. We have learned of young men from communities in the United States radicalized and recruited... That's Robert Mueller, who at that point was still the director of the FBI. A man from Minneapolis became what we believe to be the first U.S. citizen to carry out a terrorist suicide bombing. Sherwa Ahmed blew himself up in northern Somalia as part of a coordinated attack that killed at least 20 people. He was believed to be the first American suicide bomber in history. And according to U.S. authorities, it was Omar who had orchestrated the attack. I asked Omar if that was true. I was really close to Shirwa, but I didn't have anything to do with his operation. I do remember him saying one day that I had really given him peace of mind after I'd given him a motivational speech. I realized what he was planning to do, and I told him not to dip out on me without saying goodbye. He gave me some warning a few days prior. That was about it. It may have been true that Omar hadn't ordered Ahmed to do it, but it was clear that he had at least helped him find his way to the choice he made. In this life, we believe that everything that happens to us, whether good or bad, is a form of a test. Ahmed's suicide bombing was a watershed moment in Somalia. There had been a nearly continuous civil war there for two decades. Hundreds of thousands of people had been killed. But even in the midst of all that violence, Somalis had never been willing to blow themselves up for the chance to kill their enemies. According to former CIA officer Yael Eisenstadt, al-Shabaab's willingness to use this tactic was terrifying. You start 
looking at, are they going to send suicide bombers to other countries? Are they ever going to actually, if they have enough support from Al Qaeda, like figure out how to get people on planes? Like these are all the scenarios that start going through your head once something like that happens. The question I had was whether Omar would ever do more than just give his blessing to this kind of attack, whether Omar was considering the same path for himself. I don't particularly plan for a martyrdom operation at the moment, but I would never rule it out. We have been placed on this earth to worship God and to further the cause of Islam. If giving my life in that way is the best for Islam, I pray Allah gives me strength. For his first few years in Somalia, Omar had been treated as though he were as important as he'd always imagined himself to be. He was the great recruiter. His opinions about Islamic law and military strategy were listened to by important men. He would eventually take three wives. But by the time he reached out to me, he had fallen out of favor. In his messages to me, Omar talked a lot about a documentary he'd seen about Che Guevara. I told you, after seeing Che get sold out in Bolivia, I wanted to cry for him. I know what it's like to not receive proper treatment from people you came to help because their decisions are clouded by their short-term material interest in tribal politics. Omar was bitter about the way he'd been isolated. If you stay out of the politics and let them steer the whole thing whichever direction they please, you will be a cute little foreigner and be granted the best guest treatment possible. But all of that ends the moment you have an opinion about the way things should be, especially if that opinion means that theirs could possibly be wrong. It was his wrong opinions that had led him to hiding out in an empty house, trying to avoid pissing off the leaders who'd grown tired of him, trying to figure out what his next step could possibly be. The whole world is full of so much suspense right now, you have to slash at it with a saber just to make headway. It's so ridiculous, and it's making me incredibly anxious just to get it all over with. Omar would get his wish sooner than he knew. So terrorism is not going to be accepted on this continent. Thousands of soldiers are being trained with U.S. support. They'll be deployed to Somalia to go and fight al-Shabaab. He had always been cagey about details, but the empty house where Omar was hiding was somewhere in the territory held by al-Shabaab, territory African Union troops had been trying to drive the group out of for years. Last year, the AU force took control of all of Somalia's capital, Mogadishu, and has taken more ground since... The Ugandan army says defeating the remaining insurgents is within reach. I'm pretty sure they mean it this time. It's something everyone has been waiting for, and quite frankly, we're all wondering what has taken so long. Omar was getting ready to flee. We will have to go to smaller towns and forests. Things are not normally planned well, so hunger and thirst are quite normal. I'll have to eat slugs and drink pee for a few months. Not knowing if I'd get another chance... I made one last pitch for Omar to record himself answering my questions on audio or video. But Omar said that was an even worse idea now than it had been before. I mean, it's going to look weird with the whole place falling and I'm just sitting back giving a QA and a about my childhood. People will be like, huh? Why isn't he fighting? I might as well put a bazooka on my shoulder and waltz down the street flipping everyone the birdie. Everything Omar did, he did with one eye on how it would play with Al-Shabaab, on trying not to make a bad situation worse. Even with an army closing in on him, 
It wasn't really the African Union troops that scared him. I'm more worried of running into the elements of the Shabaab that would like to find me alone in such chaos to pretend that I was lost or taken out by an Ethiopian commando mission. Omar was worried that out in the open, it would be easy for al-Shabaab to kill him without anyone knowing how he had really died. That, by the way, turned out to be the secret message he had been trying to get across in his autobiography. How al-Shabaab would assassinate its opponents within the group and then make it look like they had died in combat. Did none of you guys read that part of the book? Journalists are weird people. They pick up on the most trivial points and leave the whole point untouched. A lot of times, Omar seemed to be almost looking forward to the African Union attack. Partly to end his limbo in the empty house, but partly because he seemed to hope that the whole thing would end up working in his favor. Maybe they would take out the current leaders of al-Shabaab. Maybe whatever new leaders rose to take their place wouldn't be so determined to kill Omar. If I survive, we might have an administration that is less interested in putting me through the grinder. You might even get your interview. Then, as the fighting got closer and closer, Omar decided he didn't need to wait that long. I'm starting to warm up to the interview idea, seeing as one, it looks like I don't have much to lose, and two, the Shabaab might not be around much longer. The attack by African Union troops had finally come, in an al-Shabaab-occupied town called Afgoy, about 30 kilometers northwest of Mogadishu. Send me the questions and I'll start preparing my answers to record. But before I had a chance to respond, Omar sent a second email with the subject line, the poo hit the fan. In the body of the message were just two words. Nuff said. Fierce fighting leads to a breakthrough in the battle against al-Shabaab militants. African Union and Somali troops say they've captured a key stronghold from the al-Qaeda-linked insurgents. Right now, as I talk, al-Shabaab is on the run, and we are pursuing them. I wrote back immediately. Holy crap, you there? I'll explain in a few hours. Have to go somewhere. But we have successfully taken control of the town without harming the civilians. Four hours later, he wrote again. At this point, nothing is certain. Afgwe just fell. And the next places to fall will be Marka and Barawe. I'd say a week is probably all we should hope for. On the news, I watched reports about the progress of the African Union. We should be able to eliminate Shabab within Somalia in a short while. Two days later... Omar sent me the recording he'd made. Here's the link to the audio responses. It was an all-nighter trying to upload. I downloaded the audio onto my hard drive. The rest of Omar's message was more dire. This could be goodbye for a while, or forever. Just remember, Christoph, life is about what happens after it's over. Please keep your mind open and your heart searching for the truth. On Twitter, someone who appeared to be on the front lines anonymously posted picture after picture, graphic close-ups of the bodies of dead al-Shabaab fighters who had been killed in battle. I looked carefully at each image, searching for a white face among the dead. There was one last email from Omar, May 26, 2012. The subject line was, Houston, we have a problem. Well, looks like we missed the train. I'm sorry about that, it's a bit out of my hands. I'm gonna be a ghost for a while, and if I live to see the other side, we can try to link up again. I never wrote a will. Tell my dad about my three wives, and tell him he has five grandchildren he needs to come find and take care of, because they don't have anyone in the world after me. Tell my mom and sister to pray for guidance from the one true God, and I pray they die as Muslims. I love them all, 
and I pray we meet up in paradise. I responded immediately. Dude, call me. This time, I got no reply. We're about to go through a strategic transition soon. Mujahid's life is always an I kind of regret that I didn't make it clear that I was only afraid of a portion of the Shabbat. It's really just some politics gone wrong. Tons of close calls. I hope we have that behind Really, I think it's going to be the lone wolf attacks from the unknown targets. I don't see why I should hold back. The issue is attacking. Just the West's hatred for God's law. I think we're at war faith. That can't be done in America. What people have to keep in mind about me is that I've always been ready to sacrifice everything for my principles and for what I believe is right. So all this is really just the natural progression and outcome of all that. I just pray that God gives me the strength to to finish strong. American Jihadi is produced by Endeavor Audio and 222 Productions. It's hosted and executive produced by me, Christoph Putzel, of Hidden Door Media. Our producers are Julia Botero and Zach Hirsch, with help from Pallavi Katamasu and Ashley Cleek. Our senior producer is Brent Renault. Our editor is Keith Romer. Our managing producer is Samantha Allison. This episode was mixed by Hannes Brown with sound design by Hannes Brown and Zach Hirsch. Business Affairs, Shoshana Jakobov. Fact-checking by Laura Bullard. Executive producers include Adam Levine, Josh Gummersall, and Adam Harrison of 222 Productions, Dave Easton of Endeavor Audio, and Jonathan Hirsch of Neon Hum Media. 